Today's episode is with a close friend, Richard Salemi, who's a journalist and an ex-colleague of mine at L'Oreal today, who works at the public source now. This podcast is made possible by the generosity of listeners and viewers like you. Kindly consider a contribution through Patreon or PayPal. Links are in the details box. Any amount is appreciated. And follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The handle, The Beirut Banyan. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And to stay updated with video releases, subscribe to our YouTube channel. Thanks for listening, and thanks for watching. I'm Rani Shatah, and this is The Beirut Banyan. of journalism from a Western perspective to a Lebanese perspective. I think in Lebanon, there's plenty of positives. Like there's plenty of positives to be, to acknowledging that you have an opinion and saying it. I think Western media is less opinionated. But also I talk about how uh, Lebanon, like we lack fact-checking mechanisms in most of the newspapers. Most of them are politicized. Uh, other uh, newspapers are like commercial ones and they are uh, controlled, like everywhere, controlled by corporations and stuff. But I think what we like here is fact-checking. I, I think we like this uh, this aspect. And I work in news, so it's my observation. You don't have to adopt it. But, I, but I've not uh, worked in a Western uh, news outlet. You have uh, done that. So did you notice uh, any difference between Lebanese journalism and like working in the U.S.? Um, well, I think, I mean, I can answer this best with the area that, I, that I've mostly covered for the last seven years, both uh, in the U.S. and here, which is, which is bureaucrats and bureaucracy. Yeah. Um, you know, bureaucratic business is conducted in writing. That's one of its features, is that everything is kind of uh, reports and, and uh, documents, and, you know, you have all these clerks who are filing and collecting um, and archiving all of these things. And in the U.S., um, a lot of this stuff is either proactively made available um, or it's, you know, can be found through open records requests that are uh, more likely to succeed than, I mean, not always. I, I did have to sue the U.S. Department of Justice, and I spent two years in court with them uh, and and failed to get documents. Yeah. But, um, you know, uh, in Lebanon, as you can see from, like, the Hirdel Initiative reports, like, uh, the public records law is, is often not respected. Um, and, I mean, especially courts, right? Because uh, courts are, by default, uh, public in the U.S. Um, and, uh, you know, there's an electronic filing system for the federal courts. You can kind of pull all these files there. And um, if, if there's like a kind of an issue, like a breakdown in something, you know, you might get some official testifying uh, and you'll get 200 pages of transcript from like hours upon hours, right, um, explaining in detail kind of what happened. And here, if you want to know certain basic things like, you know, what is the current valuation of a dollar for income taxes in the Ministry of Finance, you know, that, that is going to be written down. But uh, you 
ought to have someone in the ministry yeah. who can send you a JPEG file via yeah. WhatsApp, which is a picture of the piece of paper. Sure. Um, it's primitive, you're saying. I, I wouldn't use that word. Yeah. I'm not saying it's primitive. I'm just saying that here it's a lot about relationships. Oh, that's what you mean. Yeah. yeah. So it's a lot about relationships. And so you kind of have to, I mean, and, and this information is sometimes available. And there's also, I mean, it's weird because there's a culture of opacity and secrecy and lack of transparency. But sometimes some people just don't really abide by it. I, mean, yeah. I remember talking to someone um who was um, in the Ministry of Economy, who was just kind of telling me, he was reading off numbers that were in front of him. And I guess he was on speakerphone, because then at one point I heard footsteps come across the room and someone else said, um, this is private information, and hung up the call. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, Even though it's not, right? It shouldn't well, be. It, yeah. It, yeah. All this stuff should be public. Yeah, yeah. But, um, you know, that guy didn't really care <laughs> about... Uh, talking um so there are there are exceptions to like a culture of secrecy and you know there are people who will tell you kind of what's going on everywhere um but i think in lebanon you kind of maybe rely more on these relationships um and less on just like you have to talk to people to get these things. Yeah, yeah. Unlike uh, the U.S., where it's uh, it should be. You go on to Pacer, and which is like public access courts, electronic records, or whatever. You go on Pacer, you just download the PDF. Sure. And like the anonymous sourcing thing, like uh, a lot of people, like including spokespeople, would like tell you they want to be anonymous. Which yeah. Yeah, I mean, and that's that's ridiculous. Um, it leaves room for them to make up stuff and like. Yeah. And without being held accountable for yeah. what they said. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I mean, but, but this is, I wouldn't say this is a cultural thing, like, you know, because I think some of the worst offenders are the U.S. Embassy in Lebanon. <laughs> so, okay. you know, I mean, they get trained in some hotel lobby in Washington to come here and say off the record, no comment, yeah. which is uh, nonsense because it's a... Uh, you know, an off-the-record comment has to be a comment, yeah. and a no, a no comment is a no comment. Yeah. So I don't know how you can combine. Yeah, I see what you mean. So you're saying this uh, networking is a is a major factor, and like the anonymous sourcing, uh, leaves. this is a big difference between journalism here and the US. Yeah, I mean, I think. Yeah, I, th I think that uh, anonymous sourcing is is more prevalent here. Yeah. One of the things you wrote about is the IMF deal and why it's not uh, moving uh, forward. So if you can, please explain. Uh, like, this is uh, how long ago? When I wrote that article? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wrote that article, um, I think, last April or last May. Okay, and roughly the status quo is still the same, right? Right. So, so Lebanon requested IMF assistance in May 2020 um, and kind of immediately ran into deadlock because of the bank lobby uh, coming out against it, uh, as well as uh, Riyadh Salem's BDL coming out against against the IMF endorsed estimate of losses, um, which, you know, you kind of need to know what losses you're distributing. Um, and they didn't resume until January 2022. And uh, four months later in May, there was the staff level agreement, uh, which had like 10 prior actions, uh, which needed to be completed. Um, these were kind of the policy conditions that the IMF set. And basically then for like about a year or more, 
uh, not much happened, primarily because I think that the, the main sticking point is the uh, distribution of losses. Um, yeah. Why? Well, because I think that um, you have a very strong banking lobby that is trying to kind of get an unprecedentedly beneficial deal where they pass off all of their kind of responsibility to the state. Yeah, but um, that's not only that. It's a sectarian issue as well. Because, like, I'll tell you why. Because in the same sect, you have the rich Shia and the poor Shia. So if they are distributing uh, the losses, they cannot uh, distribute it in a sectarian way, which is against the structure. No, this is also a part of it. Wouldn't you say that this is a factor? Um, I would say so. I think the sectarian narrative yeah. is one of several that is used to confuse the, the discussion. Yeah. So you think it's mostly the banking lobby that's preventing this? I'm saying there's a banking lobby, just to be clear. Yeah. I'm saying there's a banking lobby, definitely against this very strong lobby. But I also think with the political parties, because the distributing losses, but particularly this part, again, because in the same sect there's the poor and the rich, so it's, it goes that they have to make decisions against their own people. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't really see it as sectarian. Yeah. Um, I, I think that there is, uh, you know, the, the SLA, you know, at the same time in May 2022, the government had uh, a recovery plan uh, that they that the cabinet passed, which would have protected 92% of deposits in the banking system. Sure. Um, and, you know, so that covers the working class, middle class and upper middle class depositors and kind of, you know, the haircuts are going to affect really large depositors. And there's all sorts of, I think, like, ideological obfuscations here where they say, well, some of these large accounts belong to pension funds uh, for, let's say, like uh, the unions yeah, um, or like NSSF accounts, yeah. which is fine because if we remove banking secrecy, uh, which is a ridiculous law, yeah. then you would be able to say, okay, well, this account represents the combined pensions of a thousand dentists yeah. and will haircut it less than this account, which represents the hyperinflated personal assets of one person who received uh, very high amounts of interest through financial engineering. Um, and also the banking secrecy law, like we, we can sense that a lot of uh, black, uh, what do you call it, uh, money laundering was happening in Lebanon. So they, they wouldn't want to yeah. agree that as well. Yeah. Also, if you left banking secrecy, their own money, would the be, money that would, was that was uh, taken out of the country, yeah. um, kind of in in deals that I mean the whole the capital controls the banks put in place were illegal um, to begin with, but uh, they were not uh, applied to all depositors equally. Yeah, but like one of the common things that uh, got said about this, they people say like the opposers of Hezbollah, they say that Hezbollah doesn't want an IMF deal because of the borders uh you know monitoring thing like the the port and like the borders with, with syria but the imf deal does not uh, have clauses when it comes to, to that right well i mean so the, the the imf deal is a kind of a constantly changing document yeah um no but i mean the preliminary the staff level agreement does yeah. not speak about anything like, uh, related to um that. we don't actually have the text of the staff level agreement what we have is like the press release yeah uh, which doesn't mention that. Um, 
I mean, Hezbollah is is likely to see the IMF as an extension of U.S. foreign policy interests, which, you know, is not completely meritless because you see how the IMF rewrote some of its conditional, some of its conditions yeah. for loans in order to give Ukraine a loan that would have been impossible under its own lending rules, sure. right? Like Ukraine does not have the ability to repay an IMF loan, but the rules were kind of changed. And, you know, you wonder then if it was Russia or some other country that was not aligned geopolitically with the U.S., would the IMF rules have been rewritten for that country? Yeah, but even Hezbollah at some point, they weren't like they were opposed to that time. Awesome. I wrote something. About yeah. this, but the Naim Awesome said it's an imperialist tool. But then when it changed in Iran because of the COVID things, they coordinated uh, on something with the IMF. Nasrallah, was it Nasrallah? It might have been Nasrallah who said, we don't have a problem with the, with the IMF deal, back then at least. They started talking against them, the, the, the IMF deal when Jihad Azoud was named uh, a candidate for the presidency. What I'm saying is that uh, Hezbollah, at least publicly, at some point was not opposed to the IMF deal. I, I don't remember. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but uh, but uh, within within this, uh, like you're saying that that claim that it's uh, it's an not you're not saying it's an imperialist tool, but that it can be used against uh, to have power over Lebanon. Then why would Lebanon want an IMF deal? Well, I mean, for I mean, I think we should start by saying in general, debt is. Sovereign government debt is political, yeah. right? I mean, there are discussions that we're hearing about in the media where, you know, in exchange for certain concessions, e Egypt, you know, if it were to accept displaced Palestinians from the Gaza Strip, would get some of its World Bank loans uh, transferred to Israel for them to repay, yeah, or get some other some of its other debts. Um, either refinanced or forgiven, or maybe a new IMF deal would be given on more favorable terms. So debt is political. Yeah. Um, why Lebanon would want an IMF deal? I mean, I think you have to ask, are the conditionalities worth it? Um, and, you know, I mean, when the Greeks were facing a bailout, uh, they had a referendum and the, most of the population said that the conditions being put on them by the, the donors um, in that case, I guess chiefly the German Central Bank were not worth the value of the bailout. Um, the government did it anyway. Yeah. In that case, uh, in, in Lebanon's case, you've got you know a certain amount of money that will be given as a concessional loan by the IMF. You've got additional donors lined up behind it, saying that they will throw in grants and loans after an IMF deal gets passed. Um, I think it's up to the Lebanese public to uh, decide whether or not the deal is in the best interest of Lebanon. And I think that, unfortunately, we haven't really had an opportunity for a very good discussion of that because I think that, um, you know, the media, I think, has been a, a big part of the problem by propagating uh, all sorts of confusing um, and pro-bank narratives, yeah. um, whether these are kind of sectarian distractions or claims that, you know, um, well, the state is responsible for the bankruptcy in the first place, so the state should take on all these liabilities and then create this fund where you divert all the state revenues into this fund, 
which, you know, or sell state assets, yeah. which, you know, I think the, the, the studies show that the state assets are not worth enough to, recon to reconstitute the losses in the sector, even if they were sold in a fire sale. Yeah. And, um, you know, diverting all the state revenues. I mean, the state revenues in Lebanon are among the lowest globally yeah. at, relative to its GDP. We have, you know, uh, the water establishments are bankrupt and uh, living off of, you know, UNICEF and EU uh, cash injections. Uh, we get our fuel from Iraq uh, through this kind of deal in exchange for unclarified goods and services. Uh, okay, the soldiers were paid by the U.S. I don't know if they still are being paid um, by the U.S. The uh, schools, a lot of that money is coming uh, also from the U.N. Uh, I mean, and this is with the current level of revenue yeah. that the state's collecting. So you want to divert these revenues, take them onto a separate deposit reconstitution fund. I mean, I just don't think the math really makes sense. I think that, um, you know, and and I think that this idea of the, the sanctity of deposits, you know, all depositors are in the same boat. Well, no, not all depositors are in the same boat. Yeah. The plan has always been to give a full value to every depositor below. Initially, it was $500,000. Yeah. Um, so no, I mean, you have a minority of large depositors that are in one situation and a majority of small depositors in another situation. Um, and I think if you listen to Sadal Wa'at, you'll hear that all the depositors believe in this or that. But I think this is like a, a bizarre thing because the depositors are not all the same. Yeah, yeah. I think it's kind of clear also that uh, across the whole political spectrum, people are opposed to the reforms that are demanded by the IMF. Because the, the banking lobby, as you said, is like very strong and... And exist in uh, almost every single uh, one of them. Yeah. Let's move from this topic. Uh, let's talk about your uh, passion, the public sector. Sure. You touched uh, on it a bit when you were talking about uh, foreign uh, support and foreign aid for Lebanon. But let's uh, talk about this. Um, why is the public sector? Was it a, a passion of yours even uh, in the U.S.? Uh, and then it's, it became like it uh, moved with you to Lebanon. Yeah, my some of my first stories were about were about this. Um, I was uh, before I kind of got into journalism. I was translating at the uh, at the polling place for uh, voters who spoke Arabic and not English. Yeah, and I was expelled from the polling place uh, because uh, the poll worker thought that I was electioneering, meaning I was advocating yeah. for candidates inside. And that got me really interested because that's illegal yeah. um, under the Voting Rights Act. Uh, and, you know, it got me thinking about these people who are oftentimes, right, like they're all, they're not full time, yeah. right? They come in, there's maybe a school teacher, they come in and do, they do this every once in a while. And they're kind of given these complex mandates, yeah. right? You have to prevent someone from electioneering in the work, in, in the polling place. At the same time, by law, they're not allowed to interfere with uh, the right of a voter to take anyone they want, as long as it's not a representative of their employer or their labor union, anyone else can come and help them cast the ballot, uh, you know, whether it's because they have a visual impairment or uh, are unable to read it. And I think that, you know, in this case, it was clear to me, because this actually happens a lot around the country, um, that the kind of mandate around preventing pressure and influence yeah. on people yeah. inside the inside the room. Even at the US. Yeah, well, the mandate to like be on the lookout for that yeah. um, was being prioritized over the mandate of accessibility yeah. to let people, mostly immigrants who have gotten U.S. citizenship, yeah. uh, 
you know, bring someone that they want to bring um, with them. And so it's kind of got me down this rabbit hole of, you know, uh, the kind of how does a law get translated into like a training manual, get understood by a person who's coming in and then this is the person you're face to face with. Um, and I kind of started to, to feel like actually a lot of politics, like a lot of um, things that that are very political happen in these very kind of boring, non-political places, yeah. right? We're not in the election. We're not in this, the street protest. We're kind of in the world of uh, a three-hour workshop teaching someone how to match a signature on an affidavit with a signature on a ballot. But these are deeply political, um, and they affect uh, millions of people's lives. So I kind of always was interested in that. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think that... Um, you know, I carried that interest over in, into Lebanon. Is it partially because people can confuse corruption with a misunderstanding of a law, for example? Well, I mean, I will say if your rights are violated, then yeah. it doesn't matter why, really. Like, I mean, like, I think that you should take redress and, you know, claim your rights, um, even if, you know, it was, you know, what this guy did. Uh, in this but it's important to understand why it happened, no? Yeah. Well, I think... Okay. Especially uh, for us as journalists, when yes. we're yeah, writing about something. Yes. Um, yeah, I mean, there's that there's that old uh, saying, you know, if it's either conspiracy or incompetence, it's probably incompetence. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah I would. Um, but I, I guess, I mean, so we can talk about corruption yeah. and incompetence. Yeah. These are two very dominant narratives about the Lebanese public sector. Sure. Um, I think, you know, corruption as a narrative in Lebanon, there's in the public sector, there's kind of people talk about it in two ways. There's the kind of the, that your immediate experiences or you and your friends where, you know, you need to go through an intermediary to get a driver's license. So you, because otherwise it's going to take so long yeah. and be so hard. So you might pay someone to facilitate this process or, you know, you need to get stamps for something and the stamps are triple the price that is written on them. It says a tenth, it's a 10,000 stamp and you have to pay the guy 30,000 yeah. for the stamp. Yeah, yeah, Just to be before the class is tabab, alif, so like yeah. 10,000. And it used to cost 10,000 10, sometimes. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, we have kind of the other side, which is like capital P politics, which are the major high-level corruption scandals, Uh you know, the uh, Sonatrach fuel scandal, uh, the car powership scandal, uh, you know, the U.S. put sanctions on two large contractors for allegedly kind of defrauding the state. Um, and I should say that, you know, innocent until proven guilty. I don't know that these have been, uh, the court processes have finished on any of this. Um, but I think, and then you kind of, all right, so then, what to do about that is you have this um, very technical discourse that comes in and you have, you know, the Office of the Minister of State for Administrative Reform writes these restructuring proposals for all the ministries. Um, you have, you know, the, like the reform plans of 2001, 2011. You have all these kind of workshops and outside advisors come in and they're like, you know, you need to fix the system. And part of this is, you know, you've got, and sometimes like these things actually do happen and they do seem to be, uh, useful, right? I mean, the public procurement law of 2021 um, does address a lot of the problems with procurement. And, you know, there, I don't know if it's going to actually pan out, but there, 
there are signs that certain things are going better than they were. But fundamentally, I think the problem is that you have this kind of elite settlement um, at the end of the Civil War, where it's like, we're not going to shoot each other because and extort pop, the population through these kind of predatory mafia schemes because we're going to basically move into government and, yeah. and make money that way. Um, so it's kind of like, uh, you know, we'll give contracts to our followers and friends. Yeah. So I think... But that's corruption. Yes. Yeah. That is corruption. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think what needs to be kind of maybe thought about is that on the one hand, right, corruption is very political. It, it, it's the result of this elite bargain that we kind of, you know, we, we're all going to come together and, and rob the uh, the state yeah um as a <laughs> equally distributed uh, throughout sects yeah, yeah yeah as opposed to shooting each other yeah um and this you make more money this way i guess um but you know and so technical result technical interventions can only go so far when it's a political problem the impact project was very successful the coronavirus one yes yeah yeah and there are there are always I mean, I think over the last 30 years, we've seen dozens of projects, some of which have been successful, but fundamentally the issue is going to be uh, that, like, the issue is not a clerk charging you 30,000 for a 10,000 yeah. stamp, in my opinion. The yeah. issue is that fundamentally there is, like, a, a an elite consensus on, uh, yeah. like, Dividing the resources of the state. The core issue, you say. I mean, the 30,000 is a demonstration of the, is the implementation of that corruption, no? Yeah. yeah. But I think then, you know, I guess, so all this is true and all this is, I think, is like what everyone says and yeah. what everyone knows. Yeah. I think maybe what would be some way of of maybe thinking about it slightly differently would be trying to understand kind of the way in which this is not um, this is not the law of the jungle. It's not total chaos, right? There are certain uh, the institutions do matter. The state does matter, um, and I mean the state in its institutional structure. It, it does matter. It's not just like a free for all. And I think there's this perception, um, which I think foreign journalists often have, which is that like there is no like you know the state as like dysfunctional is also the way in which these institutions do matter and to use just one example is like cdr right because cdr um invented in 1977 it gets kind of reactivated in uh, 91 and hariri made it you know kind of part of his share of the state and stocks it with his CDR is different than Solidarity. CDR is the Council for Development and Reconstruction. Oh, I see, I see. And he kind of stocks it with his um, yeah. followers. Uh, but he has to share. I mean, in 1997, Berry's brother yeah. uh, gets the deputy chair of the board there. Um, and this organization, it's it's kind of, it's a parallel organization, sidelines the municipalities, um, other planning and procurement bodies becomes kind of the procurement and planning body in the state. Um, and it's been criticized heavily for corruption. Yeah. Um, but there was this 2022 study that was pretty interesting um, uh, from a couple of people at uh, the Policy Initiative, where they were they found that in this time period they looked at uh, the contracts were not systematically overspent. Um, it was a minority of contracts involving like an inner circle of politically connected companies who had direct connections to the CDR board. Okay 
who were able to get overspent contracts. Um, and this was through hiring politically connected design consultants. And as a result of this process, they were able to get about 34% more than the value of the contract, right? Like they overspend the contract by 34%. Yeah. That's kind of the amount of money that got stolen. Yeah. Um, but I think what's interesting about this case is that it's not all the contracts the CDR has ever done. It's not like every single uh, day. And I think what it shows is that corruption is not this kind of amorphous, constant, like it's everyone, it's everything, it's everywhere. It actually has patterns that we can identify and and contours that we can look at and place them. Um, it's a lot that I've got about at some point. That's uh, Let's keep going. So I was going to say the, the other thing is that I think that what this uh, example shows is that in order to carry out corrupt intentions, uh, these folks are going through bureaucratic procedures and formal institutions. They're getting their design consultants to manipulate the design of contracts, which are then being submitted to foreign donors and, you know, audited and all this stuff. And so I think what that tells us something about why the politicians fight so hard about bureaucratic appointments, yeah. uh, about kind of who they have in the room. And also fight so hard over these legal texts is because I think laws, they do matter. Uh, the re regulations matter. Who is regulating matters. In the, and I would say that, you know, whereas it might be, you know, somewhat conventional to see it as total chaos, I would guess that if you were from the perspective of a Zion, you would not see total chaos. You would see a very real state that you need to outmaneuver and outsmart and kind of strategize and work around and you only occasionally just completely ignore it but um you know so i think that is part of the reason why there are such intense fights over the sector is even is, until now you would say that people yeah as you said earlier it's also their own people from their own sects being being appointed there right but their own people aren't necessarily sitting around drinking coffee their own people are issuing uh, public works contracts and then hiring a design consultant to specify the project and, you know, going through all these procedures that are written down in law. And in order to get your 34% kind of corruption fee, you, you need to go through these hoops. Um, so I would say I, I am of the opinion of the state is is real. You know, we there really is one. Even until now, with the economic uh, collapse. Well, I think I'm not disagreeing. Yeah, you. I'm just yeah, trying to understand your perspective. I mean, it's 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 a deeply impaired. Yeah, uh, it's a deeply impaired organism. But I think that people are fighting as the politicians are fighting as viciously as ever. Yeah, over these um, uh, these these rules and laws and appointments because also I think they they know that temporary is never really temporary. I mean, look at like the negotiations over the formation of the Mi'ati cabinet before the 2022 elections. They were so intense. And on one level, you're thinking this cabinet is going to go into caretaker status by law once the election happens. So who cares? You know, this, this minister is going to have their portfolio for months, just months. So why are they spending so much time fighting over it? Because the temporary lasts and we still have the same cabinet that we have now. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the end of service indemnity scheme, which was supposed to be replaced with a pension law, that was passed this year. It was replacing a temporary provision from 1963. So, you know, people were born, lived and died under a temporary provision. So mm -hmm. I think that's kind of 
part of why there are such bitter fights. Let me ask you a question, since uh, it's your specialty. Um, the public sector workers, from your experience, because you interact with them even more. Like I interact with them for like uh, work sometimes, of course, but like uh, and for like paperwork and stuff. But you seem to be more interested in this uh, than I am. You seem to have, and correct me if I'm wrong here, some admiration for uh, public uh, workers or some of them, the good ones. Uh, am I on point here? And where does this come from? I, I mean, I think there are there are good ones. I've I've spoken to people who are very smart and uh, competent and dedicated and who feel quite misunderstood yeah. uh, by... Would you say it's the majority in Lebanon or the minority of people? The majority of workers? Yeah. I don't. I have no way of knowing. Yeah. Okay. But I mean, I've talked to some people who, I mean, who, who seem to be genuinely outraged yeah. Yeah. by some of the way, some of the things that are said about them. Um, and, you know, they say, well, I sat the civil service exam um, and it was a fair exam and I ranked, you know, third on the list and I was hired third position, but based on my score on this exam. And, you know, they may say, okay, well, maybe the director of the department is politically, you know, political uh, appointee, maybe, you know, certain key positions, but, you know, not me and not my coworkers. And it's hard for me to assess that from the outside, right? I mean, of course, they're going to say this. Um, But when I talk to some outside observers, kind of people who work on, you know, who work with or on some of these um, organizations, you know, they oftentimes will be able to point to specific people and say, this person, even though they are, you know, a Hariri guy, yeah, yeah, they're a Hariri person, they're a Berri person, whatever, they actually are, you know, smart and they're good at their job, which I think also, I mean, we have to think about the agency of these people because um, they're not just kind of like, uh, they're not just like pawns being moved around by the Zayims, Right. A lot of them, they seek out these jobs because before the crisis, this is a good job. Yeah. Right. You have a lot of people who are public school educated, public university educated from working in middle class backgrounds who are going to get stability um, and good benefits and like a decent pay. I mean, sometimes that's the only way to get employed in Lebanon, to be affiliated with the party. So if you want right, to so like, they play the game. Yeah, exactly. And like I, uh, some of my cousins, for example, are the high school teachers in the public sector. Yeah, they never spoke to anyone like to be hired. It's because yeah. Fuad have placed some structure about. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes when you're skilled, you get hired at the at the yeah. Like, job. Yeah. Um, and so I think you know, like you have to ask. Okay, well, you know, if someone is, you know, qualified and intelligent and actually, you know, good at their job you know, they may have had to make some phone calls to get there. Does that mean that they're automatically incompetent or automatically not going to work? It's unclear. I mean, for sure that does happen, but I don't know that we can make a blanket statement about, you know, about like over 100,000 people. Um, And I think we have to look at the ways in which, you know, not only do the Zu'ama instrumentalize uh, everyday people, but the way in which everyday people try, you know, living under this system, navigate it because it's, it's the only way that they can function. And I think, you know, there, there's a lot that's fair about, you know, discussions of, of this sector. Some of it, I think maybe, you know, I think the media might in some cases play into kind of classist or sexist stereotypes. It is, you know, the, the private sector is rife with nepotism and connections in Lebanon and favoritism. Uh, so it's not like the private sector is this beacon of meritocracy 
Um, and a lot of these public sector people don't have the connections that they need to get employed at like, you know, their dad's bank. Sure. Um, and they're more likely to be women than uh, compared to the private sector. I mean, uh, I can speak, I don't know if this counts uh, from your answers, but like uh, speaking about the functionality of the state, until this day, there are people graduating from the Lebanese university. It's a public university. Yeah. When sometimes in the U.S., people don't have that uh, that privilege because uh, universities cost a lot of money. Yeah. And I'm a graduate of the Lebanese university myself, and I yeah. acknowledge that this is a blessing uh, that I had uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't actually know what it's like to be an LU student because I didn't go to Lebanese University. Um, I, I think that, you know, in general, um, we should just, uh, you know, David Graeber, uh, who's like this uh, kind of anthropologist who, uh, who I enjoy reading his works, he's written about bullshit jobs, jobs where you don't do anything, where you yeah. just sit around. Has journalism one of them? <laughs> no, I mean, it's, uh, but like, what I was going to say is that... Um, you know, he said that actually there's a lot of burnout and a lot of people quit jobs where they do nothing yeah. because there's something kind of demoralizing about it. I think there are certain people who in any institution, public or private, um, are going to kind of be sitting around and certain people who maybe will get so bored of sitting around that they'll actually do something. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and But like, I also don't think like, you know, do all these phenomenon, all these phenomena exist in the private sector as well. The private yeah. sector... Today, the modern 20th century private sector is bureaucratic. Yeah. It's full of middle managers. It's, uh, you know, it, it has nepotism and, you know, these networks of, you know, you have to go to a certain school and know certain people. Speaking of uh, these demands, uh, so pop, some of the sectors in the public uh, sector are on strike, right? Yes. Can you please explain to us uh, why now? Like, they seem to be always on strike. but like, Yeah, I mean, since 2021, there have been recurrent strikes we might consider it kind of one big strike with different phases but it's been going on since uh 2021 and it basically results from the devaluation of the lira salary the lira has lost 98 percent of its value which means these salaries are now uh highly inadequate for you know anyone to live on sure. and so people you know you had absenteeism people refuse to go to work uh they say it doesn't cover the cost of gas and then in a more organized union sense um you know, strikes to try and pressure the government to to um, increase pay, which has happened. Uh, I mean, in the 2022 budget, there was a tripling of pay, and then there was a a marsum in April um, of last year, which gave an additional increase. And these two have now been in the 2024 budget locked into place permanently. But none of this makes up for the and the loss of the lira. The devaluation of the lira is so massive that none of this really yeah. uh, compensates. And what's happening now, which is really interesting, is that the government seems to be uh, trying to provide additional incentives on top of these to specific uh, employees uh, in the Ministry of Finance, Prime Minister's Office, Office of the Presidency, Central Inspection, Court of Accounts, um, on this kind of like division between, you know, like what they consider to be like more critical functions. And the unions have come out super hard against this they refuse any uh division and that's kind of where we are right now with the intensification of the strike the energy and water uh workers two days ago just announced that they were going you know fully committed to to striking because they refused this distinction and they're on the side of not important um in this distinction which i don't think is actually codified into law but people are saying you know yeah um 
But then, so, you know, because of this controversy, Miati has now uh, started to freeze these incentives for the important sections, which led yesterday to a walkout of the Ministry of Finance of the important Who are the important, like Alpha and MTC? No, uh, like yeah. Finance, uh, yeah. Prime Minister's Office, Office of the Presidency, uh, really? Taftish Markazi, and uh, really? Board of Accounts. Yeah. Okay, interesting. And so there was the walkout yesterday of um, some of the workers who are considered important yeah. because um, they, uh, because Mi'ati seems to be maybe walking this back. Yeah. So the protests were actually effective. Well, and the strikes, I mean. well, so now, I mean, now it's kind of an interesting moment because on the one hand, you have protest, you have, you have strike action because you're on the wrong side of this division. On the other hand, the people on the right side of this division seem to be trying to, you know, protect the gains that they have received and sure. not let those gains be. So they are uh, against each other somehow. I mean, I think they what, they, to do what they would all want is... For sure. Everyone. <laughs> You're suggesting that the workers should unite in terms of the man. I'm saying that I think, from my understanding, yeah. talking with the union representatives, this is what they would ideally want to see is everyone getting a bonus. They're not negotiating against each other per se. Um, but what's interesting now is that the World Bank has kind of been implicated in this because the World Bank last week uh, approved a, like a, a loan. I think it's around $30 million dollars which would include some cash incentive payments for these important departments or specific people in them. What, really? Yes. So they have uh, been focused too much on the world. Uh, yeah, over the yeah. yeah. So now kind of, I mean, I was, I was talking with the, the public sector workers union uh, uh, last night and, you know, they're kind of like, you know, now the World Bank, yeah. the World Bank, which is kind of uh, in, like uh, coming in, on behalf of this distinction. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I don't know to what extent the World Bank is behind this distinction versus the government's behind this distinction. But um, it's it's a very interesting moment because, you know, there have always been foreigners paying for uh, usually consultants and advisors yeah. um, in the Lebanese government. Yeah. Um, but in this case, it seems to be like regular civil servants in the regular gradation who will be uh, maybe receiving bonuses um, from the World Bank, which is not actually unprecedented because as, as we all know, you know, like uh, the teachers were receiving yeah. dollars yeah. from the UN. Um, so outside of the banks, by the way. Outside of the banks. Yeah. So, I mean, this is an, a really interesting moment because I think what we're seeing is as the system kind of falls apart yeah. into bankruptcy, um, you have these interventions to like, save one or another function and the question then is like are the donors kind of collectively not they're not in a room with cigars but are they collectively deciding what lives and what dies yeah. in the yeah. Lebanese government yeah yeah I see it but anyway it's a pleasure interviewing you Richard you're a good friend of mine it's really an honor and I really enjoyed like, uh, talking to you thank you so much thank you thanks for listening and watching and a friendly reminder to support this podcast by contributing through Patreon or PayPal. All links are in the details box. Until next time, I'm Rani Shatah, and this is the Beirut Banyan. Thanks for listening and watching my episodes in the Beirut Banyan. Don't forget to like, subscribe and leave a comment and let's get this YouTube channel going.